If you were fascinated by the story of uh, Frank Abagnale Jr., most uh, famously depicted in the film Catch Me If You Can, then listen very closely, because we're about to reveal a story that is even more thrilling, and every bit as true. It's the story of John Acker Blaymazer, a con man from Ghana who managed to scam the world and get away with it, not just for years, but for decades. And it's being told for the first time by author Yopoka Yibo in a book called Anansi's Gold, The Man Who Swindled the World. And it's getting rave reviews. And as I was saying to Yopoka off air, any minute now she's going to get a huge offer from Netflix. Congratulations and welcome to our Little Wireless program. How did you come across this extraordinary story? Thank you for your kind words and I'm thrilled to be here and to be speaking with you. I came across this story in a roundabout way. In 2016, there was an election in Ghana and in the early stages, a bunch of parties were thrown off the ballot. So people were talking about precedent for that. And the biggest example was John Ackerblay Mazer's run for president. So people were talking about him and they were, I think, a channel rebroadcast a um, 60 Minutes segment about him. And so my mum sent that over to me and she asked whether I thought what he was saying about President Kwame Nkrumah was true. And I was like, that's patently absurd. But my mum is a very serious person, so I found it surprising that she could be won over by John Ackerblay Mazer. Um, and so I thought there must be something here. Before we uh, meet our man, John, I think it's important to give us a bit of the history of Ghana and its fight for independence. The fight for independence was pretty much ongoing throughout the whole colonial period, but it really intensified after the Second World War. Ghanaian soldiers especially had fought hard and bravely and were commended by the British government but not actually paid or given the pensions they were promised. And so there was a protest. And as the soldiers marched towards Christenberg Castle, three of them were shot at and killed. And this sort of coincided with a whole bunch of different kinds of protests, but it really, really triggered like a renewed independence movement. And... One of the most notable figures was, of course, the person who would become president, Kwame Nkrumah. He, of course, was a uh, Ghanaian nationalist who formed the uh, Convention People's Party in 1949. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a very complicated, thorny part of Ghana's history. And also, he was repeatedly thrown in jail by British authorities and he was in jail when his party won an election. And then negotiations began for independence, which finally happened in 1957. And it was obviously a huge moment in Ghana's history, but also Ghana sort of became a beacon of the world and of what like this next phase of history after the Second World War would look like. And it was also obviously... Uh, deeply threatening idea to several leaders of 
still colonized countries. Well, the story gets quite familiar here because uh, as president, he's ousted by a CIA-backed coup. Yeah. In 1966, the police and the army staged a coup quite openly and gleefully backed by the CIA, but also British authorities. He was on his way to, I believe, Vietnam at the time. And he was on a stopover in China when he found out. And he just never got to go back home to Ghana. He lived most of the rest of his life in Guinea. Now, the the junta accused him of uh, hiding the country's gold overseas, but uh, what had actually happened to uh, Ghana's gold reserves was worse than that. Yeah. Towards the end, Nkrumah got very paranoid, and there had been so many attempts on his life that like, lots of people were either behind bars for that or for actual corruption and so after the coup d'etat happened, the Fenton would basically parade these people in front of the press and um, have these people say outrageous things like Nkrumah had houses all over Africa, he had gold taps, he had lavish homes abroad and fast cars and dozens of mistresses and bank accounts everywhere. It's so extraordinary that the gold uh, was held in reserve in London and it was squandered by the British. The British uh, depended on Ghana's gold to to prop up the value of their own currency. Yeah. (laughs) Shocking sums of money were being sort of held and invested in Britain. And it was being managed by sort of a firm called the um, Crown Agents who managed investments from colonies. And when Nkrumah was ready to rebuild Ghana, he asked where it all was and nobody knew. He sent he literally sent people over to London to try and figure out what had happened. <laughs> and what had happened was that the the British had mismanaged the funds so badly. They'd lost £12 million in one reserve and £10 million in another. So, like, one investment lost 25% of its value. <laughs> There's a little quote from the Bank of England who said the investments were open to various criticisms, which might be hard to refute. <laughs> we're talking about other sorts of scams here in a way, aren't we? Now it's time to meet John. Tell me about his early life. John Ivory Mazer was born in a very modest home in Western Ghana. And by all accounts, he was blisteringly bright and clever and observant. And from a really young age, he started to use that to his advantage. So he would sell kerosene like house to house in the village. And then when he got a little older, he developed what he said was sort of powers of foresight. And so people would go to him for readings. So by the time he was a teenager, he had a sort of, I don't want to say cult, but he had people who relied on him for various different things spiritually. So when he was leaving for Philadelphia in the 1960s, his boat was waved off by dozens of women wearing white. 
Now, you link him to a character from stories told to children in Ghana, and this gives us your title. Yeah. Uh, Nancy is your standard trickster god. Um, He tells stories, he tries to get one over on people, and generally he's used to teach guardian children not to be tricksy or wily because it eventually backfires. But at the heart of this is that once he's done and he's sort of like loping off having been defeated, the story remains. And I feel like this is exactly what Blade Mazer did. Not that he conjured stuff out of the air, but he was sort of very good at immediately taking the news or like events in politics or his situation and turning it into a boon. He would turn dozens of people who were in charge of monitoring or jailing him into his supporters or people who worked for him. He used every turn of history to his advantage, and the biggest one was obviously President Kruber's death in 1972, which is where the scam sort of started. We should point out that uh, Anansi sometimes is a man and sometimes a spider, and that has a resonance later in in our chat together. Now, tell us about the big con. What was the basic premise? The basic premise was that Play Mesa was a confidant and relative of Kwame Nkrumah. And when President Nkrumah was on his deathbed in 1972, um, he entrusted Play with this great secret that he had hidden gold, silver, diamonds, and banks all over the world, mainly Switzerland. And Blaise's job was to shepherd this money until the time was right and then give it back to the people of Ghana. And because Ghana was such a mineral-rich country, these were gigantic reserves that had continued to grow to the point that he had enough money to return a good chunk to the people of Ghana, and then there was a tiny bit left for him that he could do whatever he wanted with. And so if you would help him fund the costs of like the legal arrangements with the banks or like the admin, he could give you 10 to 1. He makes Bernie Madoff sound like a a rank amateur, doesn't he? And uh, he sets up an office in America in 1973 and investors start rolling in. Businessmen, lawyers, accountants, insurance salesmen, etc. Yeah, very prominent people. And also, I should say, there were a lot of investors who were sort of part of black liberation movements. It was curious to me the whole time I was researching this. Like, I, It was weird that so many people were so credulous. But then I thought about it and I was like, well, if it was 1973 and you didn't know anything about Ghana, you just go to a library and like ask them to look up whatever Time magazine it said. And it would be like the slander about President Nkrumah. He had stolen tons of money. He had golden taps, et cetera, et cetera. And so this would perfectly stand up the story Blay was telling people and reinforce it from, like, lots of different directions. But he was able to take advantage of the fact that people in the US knew so little about Ghana. Yeah. 
he did this in other countries too, um, like in, in Britain and Germany. He occasionally would do his meetings dressed in full traditional dress. He said he was like a chief in the Western region, which he eventually became. But he would like have a whole retinue, they'd step out of a Rolls Royce. And during the meetings, he just wouldn't say a word. He would sit there, have other people doing the talking for him. And just the vision of this man in traditional guardian dress um, <laughs> kind of told a story. These people were able to tell themselves a story to the point that Blade Mesa didn't have to say anything. You broke up. Um, I want to give him money just listening to this description. <laughs> I want to hand him large piles of dosh. And uh, it becomes yeah, a global it, phenomenon because there were investors in across four continents, the UK, the US, Africa and Korea. Yeah. The fact that this spread so wide is incredible to me. It's interesting about his... Uh, go at the presidency that you were talking about earlier. At first, no one took him seriously, but he starts to draw serious support. It's a bit like Donald Trump in 2016. It's exactly like that. He, as we were talking about, he was extremely charming and he knew what to say to people. He knew what they wanted to hear and that is all he did. He promised jobs, no shortages, clinics, hospitals, water everywhere, electricity everywhere. Um, he also just gave out food and money, which I'm sure helped. Um, a lot of people remember the campaign because he literally promised every single person from the Western region a job. And I think he also gave away so much money that he had a lasting effect. Like, that money put people through school, apparently. We were talking about Nancy before and how he could manifest himself as a man or as a spider. And I mentioned the spider because uh, at one point he buys a, a football team as a way yeah. to shore up his popularity and lo and behold, its logo was a large black spider perched in the centre of a web. Blaine Mason loved a symbol, especially like one that was tricksy. It's like... He would play with reality by simultaneously admitting that this was a con, but also denying that this was a con. And it was a thing the vast majority of Ghanaians I spoke to during my research remembered about him, like this amazing football team and the chant. This is so Trumpian. So by the mid-80s, <laughs> he was one of the, the largest fraudsters of the 20th century. How did he manage to keep the scam running for so long? So things like the football team were a huge part of the way he propped up the scam because he managed to capture sort of public interest in... Ghana, like he promised that he would not be running for president again, so he was backed by a military government at the time. And so, because he couldn't do anything in politics anymore, he would charm people with things like this. So, he like renovated the stadium, he sent the team to Brazil for a training session, they like performed really well, they'd have these huge rallies before matches. Like the, the team was still pretty legendary after all that. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, Russian oligarchs also have recently been buying football teams in the UK. (laughs) I'm pleased to report there were a few very notable sceptics. Older listeners will recall the name of Shirley Temple, this immense child star, and she becomes Shirley Temple Black and serves as the American ambassador to Ghana at the time, and she could smell the proverbial rat. She absolutely could. This was largely because she apparently loved dinner party gossip, and there was a former Ghanaian ambassador to the US called Ian Deborah, and he threw a great party. And so he was telling her about Blade the entire time in an attempt to, like, discredit him. He had known Nkrumah. He knew the claims weren't true. And he was having trouble getting anyone else to believe this because the military leader at the time was supporting Blade Mesa. And so she would send these cables back to the US saying, nobody really knows what's going on. Even the people who think Blade Mesa is a fraud don't want to look stupid if he actually does have the money. (laughs) It's interesting. He he manages to fool Mitchell, the very close associate of Nixon, but here's uh, Shirley Temple Black sensing that something's wrong, passing this on to uh, Henry Kissinger in Washington. How did it eventually fall apart? You mentioned a 60 Minutes interview. Yeah. By the time this rolled around, it was about 1988, and all the ways that Wayne Mazur covers us, us, like the football team, like John Mitchell, like just being a popular figure, had become inaccessible. Like some people had died, he was out of favour with the Ghanaian government, he was no longer running the football team. And so all he could do was spin wheels and say, the money's coming, the money's coming, and then he would announce that everybody needed to get to Switzerland immediately or the Bahamas. He did this so many times that people started to realise, well, some people started to realise the money wasn't coming and some people decided that the only way to force his hand was to contact the police. And so, yeah. One of the investors was really good friends with Ed Bradley, one of the hosts of 60 Minutes, and that's how Blair was convinced to to speak to the correspondent. He thought that maybe he could charm him like he charmed everybody else. Turned it into another puff piece, but it, it did him in. Okay, he's charged, but before he could be convicted, he dies. But even his death has, well, it's shrouded in mystery. Yeah. I I interviewed a journalist who was there at the time in Ghana at the place where he was being held on house arrest, but the press never got to actually see him. People would go into Blade Mazer's room and come out and be like, yeah, he's in terrible shape. He's having horrible palpitations. He needs to leave the country immediately to get medical attention. Um, and the people were there for maybe like 12 hours and nothing happened. So they went off to file their stories. And then the next day, it was sort of like a eerily quiet. And his wife started to get more feeling and raced to the house to see it was padlocked. And there was nobody inside. And so this news really slowly trickled out that he had died. And it was confusing because 
at the time, investors were convinced that he was in other countries. Some of them thought he was in Germany for medical treatment. And after news he had died came out, some of them thought he was cryogenically frozen. <laughs> so when the time came, he could like finish doing the work of the trust and give out the money. Netflix are going to love this. Now, most incredibly, you say that the con is still alive and kicking. Yeah, uh, which was a surprise when I first started researching this. The people are still running the con in Ghana um, almost constantly. And there were people in Philadelphia, some of them were targeting uh, former investors who were older and frail and who still had faith in Blamazer, so much so that they were still giving money, which I thought was deeply sad. But the strange thing to me was even the people who lost money, who lost houses, who lost families over this, thought of Blaze somewhat fondly. Like, they'd either think he was a con man, but the story was true, or that he was just misunderstood and it wasn't his time. Uh, Yopoka, thank you. This is a a fascinating book. Uh, It's called... Anansi's Gold, The Man Who Swindled the World, and it's published by Bloomsbury. And I've been talking to the author, Yupoka Yibao. Thanks very much, Yupoka. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.